there's also a lot of it that I think I am not remembering now and probably will never remember because you're just in such a, uh, like a deep place, um, in the middle of that race where like, <laughs> you're just trying to get through it. And you, I think your, your brain does a really good job of, uh, wiping that from the memory for the most part. So <laughs> I think that's why we can convince ourselves to do things like this over and over again, because you forget about how, how just, just how bad it was in the middle. From KOM Cycling and Michigan Midpack Media, welcome to the Dirty Chain Podcast, the podcast that covers the cycling scene from the viewpoint of the Michigan Midpack. I am your host, Trevor, and this week on the podcast, American pro cyclist Robin Carpenter from Rally Cycling joins us to recap his sixth place overall finish of the recent Unbound Gravel Race. Now, if you happen to catch last week's episode, you heard Sheldon and I geek out quite a bit about all the incredible gravel happenings that have recently gone on, specifically Unbound, a little closer to home, the Sancho 200. We also talked about how well some of the recent podcast alum did at Unbound. It was insane. Ian Boswell, of course, Amity Rockwell, Ted King, Stephen Hyde, Jeremiah Bishop, Alexi Vermillion, Tyler the Vegan Cyclist, Roy Krantz. What a list. They, they did amazing at Unbound. It was great to get a new voice and a new perspective on the podcast, and I was lucky enough to connect with Robin. Robin Carpenter took us through his race and his preparations and what it was like to be a professional road cyclist lining up at what is probably the largest gravel race um, in the world. I want to get right to that interview, but before I do, I just want to give a quick heads up for next week. We will also have another race recap of the Sancho 200 with our friends Tristan Smith, a Sancho veteran, and also a Sancho rookie, Mark Bryson. They both both take us through their uh, individual 200-mile races, and uh, it, it's great. I had a great conversation with them, and hopefully we might hear a little bit more about Unbound from some of our local friends as well. All right, let's get right into it. Robin Carpenter and Unbound Gravel. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, so fresh off the uh, <laughs> the event, um, being willing to uh, to talk and uh, and be on the podcast. Oh, no worries. Yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to recover, so I'm not doing a whole lot except uh, packing my house. So, are you are you mo- you're going to move? Soon? Yeah, very very soon. Yeah, um, right after Road Nationals, which is uh, on the twentieth. Big big uh, big move or. Just like you, local. Going, going to Boston. <laughs> I'm in San Diego right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
Well, but, actually, didn't you grow up in in Philly? Yeah, I grew up on the East Coast, so it's kind of a bit like coming home. Yeah, um, yeah. My brother was saying, "Did you live like by the Maniac Wall?" And something? yeah, one like within one block from the the top. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so you got a lot of good uh, um, steep climbing training, I guess. Punchy climbing. Yeah, when training. I was a kid, for sure. I used to like, commute a lot to school by bike, um, and in high school on on a fixed gear. So getting home was always a chore. <laughs> so you mentioned you're still kind of recovering from Unbound. Um, first off, man, what a race! Uh, congratulations on a, such an amazing finish. And kind Thanks, of man. being the the leader of the road pros, going out to represent the the roadies, I guess, <laughs> out there in the in the. I haven't crack. actually thought of it like that, but I suppose that's true. Yeah, that's funny. I guess um, I still consider Boswell to kind of be a road pro, but uh, you've definitely been out of the road scene for two years now. Yeah, d- yeah, um, but uh, yeah, congratulations on that. You said you're still kind of uh, recovering. But also, I'm wondering, are you still kind of processing how everything went down? Um, it's got to be a, uh, I don't know, you're, you're, you're experienced in racing, you're experienced in uh, big days like that, I, although Unbound is kind of it's like its own animal. But uh, as you're processing through it, is there anything that like, I don't know, is it a slow process or are you kind of just... Uh, yeah, I mean, as you sort of talk about it and relate it to various people, you sort of start to understand more and more, I think. But there's also a lot of it that I think I am not remembering now and probably will never remember because you're just in such a uh, like a deep place um, in the middle of that race where <laughs> like you're just trying to get through it. And you, I think your, your brain does a really good job of... Uh, wiping that from the memory for the most part. So <laughs> I think that's why we can convince ourselves to do things like this over and over again, because you forget about how, how just, just how bad it was in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess we'll, I, I kind of want to get to the race specifically, but I'm wondering is, is was there again, like you, you're, you're not uh, unfamiliar with, with, uh, with racing and, and events, but was there something special about Unbound that pushed it even a little further than some of the other ones that you have done in the past or some of the road racing or the European road racing that you've done in the past? I mean, yeah, it's very different from a lot of the road racing. Uh, there weren't that many times where you're, where I was absolutely flailing, trying to hold, hold some, hold a wheel, you know, in, yeah. in Unbound. Um, there were plenty of times where I was going very, very hard in the first uh, five hours. Um, harder than I would have ever expected for a race of that length. Um, but yeah, the way I've been, if you, if you look at the numbers, if you, I have had a power meter on there and when I was doing it, I was looking at the power and thinking, "Mm, that looks like it's reading high. This doesn't seem right. (laughs) Um, but if you look at the numbers for the first five hours, it's as hard as any, any road race, most road races that I do, not, not all of them, but most, uh, in Europe, just um, for the, the first five hours, just for the first five hours. That's insane. Yeah. And then you, I mean, but the thing that's different about unbound and the thing that makes it unique is that, uh, it's basically a hundred miles too long, right? You would have <laughs> quite an epic race and a battle and a showdown in just the first half. But then the real, the real battle begins in the second half when you're just trying to maintain, 
sort of as high of a rhythm as possible, but knowing that you have to do it for six hours straight uh-huh. and knowing that you have to do it through the heat of the day. And um, in this case, it was pretty much all headwind, cross headwind for the second half. Um, and that's the real battle. That's what makes it super unique is getting through that without mentally quitting or physically falling apart. During the front half, um, I've read a few things about um, how it went down the other day. And like, like you said, I heard that the, the pace was extremely high. Um, and then people talk a lot about Little Egypt. And I've never done Unbound. I'm sure like everyone that's been uh, a part of this race before um, in the past or now um, probably knows a ton about Little Egypt. But explain to me, it, it seemed like it was a decider, a deciding moment. Um, it was a decisive moment, yeah, in the race. Um, there were a lot of moments before that that thinned the group down significantly. So there okay. was only eight of us coming into Little Egypt in the front group. What, um, what, what mile is Little Egypt around? Around mile 95, 90, 95. Okay. Where it okay. Starts. Um, it's a short section. Uh, it's got some downhill in it. It's got like a little bit up, a little bit of down, and then like the last three minutes are very steep and very rocky, very chunky. There's only one line to take. Um, and yeah, the race, the final selection of five was made there. Okay. Um, and I had, I mean, <laughs> I didn't know anything about it either. I knew, I knew the name and I knew it was probably the, I mean, I think people said it was the most, um, one of the chunk, like the chunkiest sections on the course. Um, but I didn't know anything else about it. I actually didn't know when it was coming up. I knew it was kind of in the first half, but I didn't know where it was, what it looked like, what kind of like the terrain it was. Um, sure. But in the race, we came into it and there's actually, they actually have signage on it. Um, surprisingly, there's no other signage anywhere on course for any sort of sections. Um, but they had like a big sign. So it's like little Egypt begin. Um, so I was like, aha, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And so I, I came into the, the, the middle of it, the bottom of the last climb. I definitely, I wanted to be at the front on the downhill because I knew it was pretty gnarly. So I uh, was able to take the front and downhill and then was trying to ride up the beginning of the last climb on that section uh, in the front, sort of at my own pace. Um, but I was quickly passed by Stetna um, and the four others uh, who were like, it was clearly that that was like where it was going down. Um, yeah. And I made a, I kind of made a conscious decision. I don't know. It's hard to remember exactly what went down uh, at that point in the race. I was dealing with a broken, a broken shifter clamp on my on my um, on my on one of my shifters, so I couldn't ride in the hoods at all. Um, and my shifting into my smallest gears was really screwed up for some reason. Can't can't figure it out. But it was like really, um, it was hard to shift up into the smallest gears and very uh, like if I tried to switch gears at all, it would like kind of go haywire. Um, so I was kind of like dealing with that a little bit and going quite hard and not wanting to go much harder than that in the middle of the, in the middle of this race, uh, with a hundred miles to go. I know I didn't know the terrain. I didn't know, uh, didn't know what was coming up afterwards. So I knew that everybody was surging, but, um, kind of had to, you know, hold back a little, a little bit. Um, and then it turned out that that was a big selection point. They, they all were ended up together at the top of the climb about 10 seconds ahead of me and then started team time trialing away. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you mentioned your, uh, your shifter and some other mechanicals. And I think mechanicals are like the, uh, the name of the, the race or the, Definitely. I don't know. Um, so what happened to your shifter? 
Uh, it was just, un- it was an unfortunate accident. So like we said, the uh, pace in the first um, three, four hours was immensely high. Uh, we came and we got to the first aid station at mile 65 uh, 20 minutes before my mechanic was expecting us. Um, oh and like n- neither of us had done this before. So uh, we didn't really know what to expect. And we were early. He wasn't expecting us. Um, and uh, he wasn't around anybody that was, we hadn't coordinated with anyone to like park together so that they could uh, sort of give me any advice or help him out. So we showed up early and it was clear that he wasn't ready. So I was like, oh man, like kind of panicking. Um, and one of the key things you want to do in the aid stations is get your chain lubed and wipe off a lot of the, a lot of the dust. Um, and so I thought he had the bike and he thought I had the bike. Um, and we dropped the bike uh, on the left side. Um, and normally that really wouldn't be a problem. I was very surprised, but I think maybe there was something weird with the, either the shifter was like clamped too tight to the bar and didn't turn, or there was something defective about the metal uh, clamp on the inside, but anyway, the clamp, uh, the clamp snapped. So the metal actually broke inside. And then I, uh, it was still attached obviously by the the hydraulic brake line. Um, and it's uh, wireless, so I could still shift and kind of like lightly use the front brake without, uh, pulling it too hard. Was um, it kind of like flopping around a little bit? Yeah. Oh yeah. My fully God. flopping on the bar. So I basically rode in the drops for the next 140 miles. Oh my God. What was your, uh, was your back screaming or does it like, did it, did it have a physical It wasn't toll? so bad. Yeah. It wasn't so bad. I'm no, I'm used to riding the drops a lot. You know, when you're in a fast race yeah. in Europe, that's just where you end up no matter what. Um, so it's comfortable for me for the most part, but doing eight hours in the drops was a little bit much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also not great when you're trying to climb on really, uh, really like rocky uh, sort of slidey sections. Cause your weight's just, tilted forward and yeah it's tough to like keep traction on the rear wheel so not ideal but i think yeah a big part of that race is just uh managing yourself and managing your gear and even if things go wrong just trying to make the best of it because they go wrong for pretty much everybody at some point in the day yeah i don't think it's very very rare to get away with a a perfectly clean race did you have any other mechanical issues i had one flat um, about 180 Ks in. So after that split went, I was with one other guy about five minutes behind the the leading five. Um, and I had a flat, just, you know, benign flat on a, or it seemed like a benign section, uh, and spent a bit more time than I would have liked trying to fix that one. I, if you're familiar with using tubeless tires or, um, sealant, uh, what some thing that can sometimes happen is that if you don't uh, store the valve stems upright, uh, the sealant can sometimes get stuck in the valve stem yeah. and kind of clog it. Yep. And I was, so I flatted and I put a plug in it and was trying to use uh, my CO2, obviously, because this is what you do. It's like a quick add more air and you get to go. And it's usually, usually should take you under a minute, actually, if the plug works. Um, but I think there was a bit of a clog. So it was the CO2 inflator head was having a hard time getting air through the valve stem Uh and the inflator head literally blew a gasket. Um, so I lost all the air from that cartridge. I put another one in and then lost like three quarters of the air out of that one, uh, before realizing what was going on. So then I had to pull the pump out and start pumping it to get it up to, uh, something reasonable. Um, got going again for about a hundred yards and then a rock actually 
cut off the uh, the plug, um, like the the part that keeps it from just slipping you back inside the tire. So I had to put a new plug in and then use my last CO2. And I figured out that if you like, I used all my strength to like jam the inflator head onto the valve that I could get about half the air into the, uh, into the tire. And right at that point I got caught by the next group of three that was on course. And I had about 20 PSI in the rear tire. And I just was like, okay, this is it. I'm going like, hope this holds. Um, and it did for the next, um, when was that? That was 180 Ks in. So the next 50 miles rode with pretty low pressure, but honestly not horrible. Like got through it and being in a group was the biggest thing, honestly. Like if you can get yourself into a group that's working well together. Yeah. That's the most crucial part of that, of this year's event anyway, because of the, of the conditions and the wind. Sure. Um, yeah, it's a little different game, I guess, uh, than, um, I, like, uh, a road team or having having like a team car or something with uh you're, you're, you're yeah, kind of yeah. out there by yourself and i'm not saying you don't have much experience with having to plug a, a gravel tire but that's that seems a little um i don't know something you'd probably don't normally have to worry about um in in the race itself yeah definitely uh, not in the races but you know we do you know uh i do plenty of you know plenty of training rides in the middle of nowhere um and unlike a lot of my, our European counterparts, like a lot, most Americans actually know a little bit of what they're doing when it comes to repairing <laughs> a bike on the road. Um, so I had plenty of experience using plugs and knew what I was doing was totally calm. But it's definitely uh, the hardest part is planning to have everything with you just in case and trying to make sure that you have enough uh, fail safes sort of tucked away so that if something really does go wrong and you end up flatting a lot of times that you can still get yourself rolling again and make it to the next aid station. That's the most important part. Finishing. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of planning, um, you know, the like unbound and some of these bigger races, gravel races. I mean, I guess for like amateurs or some other, they, these gravel pros, they're like the biggest race of the year planned out for months and months um, everything it kind of is dialed in. Uh, I heard that your preparation was a little different. You weren't even planning on being uh, at the line at Unbound. Um, so, how do you think that affected the day? Um, and and then I'm I'm curious, how did you get all your stuff around? Like, how did you even get a gravel bike? You probably have a gravel bike, but it just for a road team, and then all of a sudden you need a gravel bike. You probably need several sets of wheels and have all you know. So, how did that affect your your day? Um, I don't think it affected it that much, honestly. I mean, okay. in, in the two weeks leading up to it, I was definitely um, thinking about it every day uh, and trying to. I made a lot of lists on my notes app on my computer and on my phone, like sort of whenever I would think of something and try to try to try to write it down. So I wouldn't forget about it. Um, uh, but I did a lot of thinking. I listened to a fair number of podcasts. I read a bunch of articles um, and bugged every one of my friends um, who had done <laughs> the event. Um, okay. About like what they thought. So I don't, I, I think I came into it actually quite fairly well prepared. Um, Good. Equipment wise, like as, as good as we could do, uh, with the, with what we had. Um, but it was definitely, I felt like for the first time in my bike racing career, I was actually having to use my brain 
too. Like it's like, <laughs> um, normally I don't have to think about any of the logistics. I don't have to think about planning the travel, uh, planning the food, planning the feeding, any of that stuff. Like it's all just train, rest, eat, sleep, and, uh, pedal your bike. So, uh, this was a big, big difference. And it was, it was, it was enjoyable to have to plan all of it out and to, to think about it a lot. I, it was a little bit stressful, but I was enjoying the process. Good, good. Um, what, what, what was the plan? You were, you were planning on doing a, uh, a race in France, correct? Yeah. I was originally supposed to be in Europe until, I mean, the team is doing their last race of the first half of the year uh, now, Tour de Suisse, um, in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this year I had issues procuring a residency visa for Europe. So that meant I was stuck on the tourist visa, which is a standard visa that most Americans get if they visit Europe. And it means that you can only stay for 90 out of every 180 days. So out of every six months, you can only stay for half of it, and it can be sort of broken up. Um but uh, we had to be careful about, we wanted to be, team wanted to be careful about following those rules because if you get caught out um, overstaying, you can get a travel ban uh, or a fine and uh, we didn't want to risk that. So we had a big race cancellation in France with the four days of Dunkirk. And that meant that with my specific calendar, I was, if I had stayed to do the rest of my calendar for that, for, for the sort of abbreviated stay in Europe, I would have been staying for four weeks to do a one day race. And I was closing on a house in Boston, uh, right around this time. And also we kind of thought about it and realized that it didn't make sense to waste 28 days of a visa of a limited visa on a single one day race. So I went home, got to close on the house in person, make sure nothing went wrong there. And then was just expecting to be home for two months training for nationals, uh, which are in another two weeks. Uh, and then the opportunity to do Unbound kind of presented itself. And uh, I guess, I don't know what the phrase is, but made hay while the sun was shining. Sure. I guess that's what it is. Uh, on, on the other end of that, are you happy you you did it? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> like really, yeah. For one, I got to see uh, an old teammate of mine who lives in Kansas. Uh, I got to stay with him, Joe Schmaltz. Okay. Um, and... I also just got to see so many different people that I haven't seen in four years. You know, I, I joined Rally in 2018 and we went, I've raced almost exclusively in Europe since then. And there's just a lot of faces that I haven't seen. And, you know, it's been like we were on another planet for, for quite a long time. So yeah. it was really, really enjoyable to see a lot of people that I hadn't seen in a very long time, a lot of old friends. Um, and it was also just cool to finally experience what everybody's talking about with these gravel races and specifically unbound, you know, it's, it's the granddaddy of, of gravel races. I think it's got tough terrain. The rocks are outrageous. There's nothing I've ridden that quite compares to that stuff. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm super happy. I'm really hoping I get to go back again. Yeah. I mean, with a sixth place finish, I mean, I feel like it, it, it takes a, there's a something there and it's not just power numbers. It's not just talent. It's like, there's a technique, there's a whatever that, um, it takes with gravel. And I think we've seen year after year, a lot of road pros, um, step up to the line and just, you would think that they would do extremely well. And it just seems like sometimes they do okay, but there's, um, but for, for sixth place, man, that it was, I was totally impressed 
and uh, I hope to see you do more gravel in the future. I am curious if you, if you've wondered. Um, I didn't really think this year would the finish would look the way it did with the top five being who finished top five, especially with this how stacked the field was. Um, and I don't know. Do you have any opinion or thoughts on why what it is about gravel that's like what? How is it evening the field so much that, uh, you know, not only were you the first road pro, but you were the youngest person in the top 10, I think. Um, Most most everyone else was, I think, 30 or above. Ian, I think Ian's 30 or at least his racing age is 30, it looks like. But but yeah, I think you may have been the the only 20-year-old in there. There, I think at least the highest up 20 in in their twenties. Um, so what is it about gravel or what is it about these endurance races that can keep guys like, you know, Lawrence 10 dam is 40 years old. Ted King's <laughs> up there. Um, I don't know. Do you have any opinion about that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, we all know that like, uh, people with, with, with age, people generally get better at aerobic endurance, mm-hmm. right? They all get, um, you know, you just get better at being able to hold on for longer. Um, I, was, I was just looking, sorry, I was looking at the results. There's one 24-year-old in 10th, in Brennan Wirtz. Okay, yeah. I've never met the guy. I don't know who he is, but you're 100% right. Um, uh, no, it's uh, leveling. I don't know. So, yeah, I think there's like, yeah. Ten Dam is kind of a little bit of an outlier because I think this was his what second gravel race. Um, yeah. So it was honestly so is Boswell. Yeah. Um, they yeah. haven't been doing it for very long, but uh, we can't forget that those guys have both done multiple Grand Tours. Boswell was right. had one of the highest Neo Pro salaries on Team Sky back in the day, back in like whenever that was, 2014 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Ten Dam, he's been top 15 overall at big at some of the Grand Tours, like. They're serious engines. Um, Ted King was a you know world tour pro for very many years, so they may be the gravel pros now, but the the those races don't go away; they don't just disappear. Um, sure. And so the I think one of the big separators is just you an ability the 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 luxury to focus on riding the gravel bike mm-hmm. and dialing your setup, um, picking your picking your tires, being able to. Um, do a lot of sort of experimentation with what works and what doesn't. Um, and also just those guys, some of those guys have done the event a few times, right? Um, yep. I think that's really big is having, knowing the course, knowing how it plays out, knowing what to expect and riding gravel a lot, knowing how to pick your lines. You know, I'm, I'm, I watched that watch in the first three hours of that race. You're just watching guys just flat and have catastrophic mechanicals left and right. Um, and a lot of that, you know, some of it comes down to what you might call luck. Um, you know, you happen to run over one rock that's pointing the wrong way or one guy in front of you rides over a piece of limestone, turns it over, and then you smash into it when it was flat for him. Um, but a lot of it also comes down to picking the right line and knowing how to, how to ride a bike like that smoothly over, over really bad terrain, um, knowing when to, when to try to float the bike over the rocks and how, how it's supposed to feel, um, having confidence in the tires, uh, to, 
hold you when you're trying to pick the right line and when you're turning and sort of like jumping around between different spots. So if you have time to practice that stuff, it definitely makes a difference. Sure. Um, and a lot of the separations in the first part are mechanical based, not necessarily fitness. So any of the road pros who are getting knocked out of the the main group, the front group in the first three hours, it's guaranteed to be mechanical. Um, mm-hmm. And it can happen for a number of reasons. Maybe the bike, they haven't ridden the bike much. It's not dialed. Like everybody knows that not everybody, but maybe I, should, yeah, I shouldn't say that, but uh, bikes hold up differently in races versus training. There's never, and there's never a training ride where you're going to go out and do the same things, the same horrific things to your bike <laughs> as you do to it in, in a race, right. you know, whether it's shifting under heavy load or bouncing over sharp rocks or just like heavy braking, um, anything like that, uh, you know, cracks, cracks appear where they weren't before. So, yeah. um, if you're getting on like a fresh bike, like I was, um, <laughs> you know, my, like I said, my shifting was super jack, uh, <laughs> in my like, tiny gears and my climbing gears. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, I, I had ridden the bike for a week before that, but, uh, you know, things just appear. Um, and yeah, like I said, all the, I didn't have any mechanicals in the first three hours and that's what kept me in the front group for sure. Yeah. I, I, I think you're totally right. Um, about so many of those things, but yeah, dialing in your, your kit is so important. And what, what, what bike were you riding? Uh, I was riding a felt, um, an unreleased felt gravel bike. Okay. So I can't really say anything more than that. Well, that's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was just, I was just curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I could tell you other details. I was riding Kenda tires, Kenda Flint Ridge 40 C tires. Okay. Um, I was on vision, vision 40 millimeter road wheels um so what not 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 gravel wheels by any means yeah. uh, but they were like carbon clinchers um uh what, and uh, what group SRAM red, E-tap, SRAM red etap axis very cool i guess i guess the other the only other thing i'm wondering is um as you are processing through it um, and, and maybe it's, it's with the last hour or whatever, but is, is there anything that you would have done different? Um, and, and maybe I guess like not getting a mechanical is not really what I'm looking for. Not really part of it. <laughs> not no, really no. part of it. Yeah. Is there anything like, I guess, yeah, I don't know about training wise, but just maybe preparation wise, or like maybe you would have kicked a little harder at, at, at little Egypt or try to stay in that front at that time? Or yeah. Is there anything that you would have changed about, about the day? Yeah. In, in hindsight, for sure. on little Egypt. I think I could have dug a little bit deeper. Um, but like I said, in the moment, uh, I was trying to pay attention to the terrain and make yeah. sure that I wasn't going to blow up later on. And what I didn't count on was that the five of them were going to basically get together so quickly at the top and start cooperating. Um, that was what uh, kind of caught me off guard. I think I was letting them go with the expectation that I could catch them on a downhill maybe, or that it would kind of be broken up into individuals enough that um, they wouldn't just immensely immediately get a, uh, get, get rolling. Um, but I think that all those five guys, they all know each other. Um, they're all the gravel pros, right? And yep. I think they were all basically in it to make sure that, honestly, to make sure that someone, an interloper like me possibly wasn't going to screw with them. <laughs> I think, um, I think you're right. <laughs> they all understand each other. They all understand the motivations and I don't blame them. It's winning unbound for them is probably not only worth like 
uh, a lot of notoriety, but in actually in endorsements and sponsors, sure. I'm sure it's worth quite a lot of money. Um, and they, that's their livelihood. You know, I, my livelihood is road racing, so yep. I don't blame them one bit, but I wish that I had maybe gone a little bit harder knowing that it was those five ahead of me and that they were probably going to work together. So yeah. besides that, like, honestly, yeah, the nutrition is something that I think everybody kind of struggles with at some point. You're, gut kind of wants to shut down you don't want to eat so much uh, sure but i think we did a pretty good i think i did a pretty good job planning that one out um am i, I actually went am i right out. to i think i read that this was this your longest ride ever no actually oh, okay. um okay i thought i read I've that done <laughs> i've done a couple of uh i did one ride that was longer than this i was two summers ago it was kind of in the wake of uh sort of the last edition of of unbound when it was called DK. Mm-hmm. Um, I was up in Santa Barbara for a wedding one weekend and, uh, I just decided, you know, it's always nice to do a one way ride. Um, I think everybody knows how, how much fun those are. You have to see some new roads. You don't have to like double back. Maybe you can take advantage of a tailwind for the yeah. entire ride or anything like that. But I decided I was going to ride home. Um, and, <laughs> Well, really, I decided that I was going to ride most of the way home, but eventually I realized that I could make it. Um, but that was 240 miles okay. um, from Goleta to San Diego. I rode through every beach town in Southern California on a Sunday, which I do not recommend to anyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was that's my longest ride so far. That was that was 12 hours right on the dot, um, and a similar amount of kilojoules actually to really to Unbound. Yeah. So I knew that I had yeah I knew I had the ability to do that kind of was it was it your longest race ever oh for sure okay maybe that's that's what i read but i've done the elite world championships um when they were in cutter Uh in the middle east uh and i think that's 165 miles okay Um, but it's quick you know i think we did that in six and a half hours seven hours yeah not 10 11 12 (laughs) sure i mean yeah and so, so with race effort and you're getting into a little bit of like unknown territory in terms of uh uh, nutrition and everything, but you said that yeah. that felt pretty good the whole time. Yep. Yeah, it felt all right. I mean, I think the name of the game in Unbound is knowing what your what you can do, what, what your aerobic threshold is. You know, like right, like being able to feather that sort of number and that kind of output. Um, as long as you keep putting food in, you should be able to do it for a really long time. But sort of knowing that limit uh, is really important for the second half of that race because. If you know exactly where it is, you can feather it and keep going pretty fast uh, without exploding as long as you keep keep getting food and nutrition. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I have a fairly high aerobic threshold, um, so I was never really super uncomfortable for the second half of the race, but it was all about trying to like trying to run that ragged edge. Did you you said when you when you flatted, how far were you in the into the event? That was probably about. 110 miles in 112 okay. and I'm jumping yeah. I'm jumping all the way back but um, oh, that's okay. yeah <laughs> but y- you said a few guys uh went by you you caught them um so did you guys yeah. roll in together at the end um, so the second group kind of got uh mix and matched for the whole rest of the race so okay. basically there was the front group of five that went away and worked together for almost the entire uh second half of the race mm-hmm. and just behind them at this at at a hundred miles in was, uh, myself and Eric Marcotte, mm-hmm. who I know from many years of road racing. Which amazing that, gosh, that guy's so strong. 
yeah, he's immensely strong. Um, and so I was with him when, when I flatted, um, and we had, I had no idea where anybody else was on course. I knew that there was a Dutch guy who had been with me about 45 minutes before that. He was the eighth guy in our group. Um, but I didn't know where he was. Um, and so I flatted, I got it fixed and I got it fixed basically right as that group of three was coming by me. And that had Dennis Van Winden and Alexi Vermeulen, who I also know from, mm-hmm. I know both of these guys from road racing, sure. uh, and, um, then other Dutch guy. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's actually three Dutch guys in the top, top there, in the top 10 at that point. Um, one of them actually, it's, this is really cool. Uh, he was riding a very unusual bike. He had very, very large tires. Um, but they were almost slicks. Um, and he's a really big guy. And I looked him up afterwards and it turns out he was, uh, he is the European and Dutch beach racing champion. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Yes. 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 Um, uh, yeah. Wait, what's his name? Ivar slick. Okay. Yeah. So beach racing is this is really big in the Netherlands in uh-huh. the winter because, uh, it's low speed, um, high, high effort. And I know these guys, and you can do it in all sorts of weather because of those, because you kind of just stay warm. But I see lots of pictures of guys like 10 Dam, Nikki Terpstra, um, doing these races, um, sort of on like the hard packed sand yeah. at low tide. Um, and they basically are like crosswind races and just power, just pure power races. Um, it's pretty cool. But, <laughs> and it was actually kind of cool to see this guy with his like unique, unique bike, unique, unique setup coming to, coming to unbound. Yeah. And, no and kidding. Games. But they caught me. We, the four of us worked together for a while. Dennis flatted, but then came back at the water stop at mile 125. And then immediately after that, uh, Vermilion flatted. And then he was kind of coming back because there was another group just behind us who was chasing us that we saw coming into the water stop right as we were leaving. Um, and we tried to hold them off for a while, but eventually we got caught. And that was uh, a group that I think had contained another roadie. Um, what's his name? He rides for Alpes and Phoenix now. Um, Eddie Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, old old mountain bike veteran, Jeremiah Bishop. Yep. Um, and eventually... And, and a third guy, actually, who was, I've never heard of before, just a 35-year-old out of Oklahoma who was strong as an ox and probably, like, 90 <laughs> kilos. But so between th- those, like, seven guys, there was kind of a lot of switching and trading off because guys would have mechanicals or they would just sort of fall apart or they would get dropped. Um, and eventually, the three of us that remained in my little group, my little chase group, for the last probably 60 miles were me, Jeremiah Bishop and Dennis Van Linden. Okay. And we just came in together and then, uh, <laughs> we sprinted for it <laughs> as you should <laughs> 11 hours in. That was a, uh, that was a surprise. Didn't really expect that. <laughs> but you, uh, I guess you, you won the, the, I just barely, I just barely held off, uh, Van Linden. Um, uh-huh. it's actually funny. We were fully cooperative until, the very end and then we were, we were about maybe a kilometer from the finish and i looked at them because there's like a it's kind of a steep hill coming into town um i just look over i was seeing if they were either of them were going to accelerate and neither of them did and then i said at the top like hey guys like if it's all the same to you i'm happy to just roll this one in you know whatever order it doesn't really matter to yeah. me like but if as long as we don't sprint like i'm happy to just roll it in um, <laughs> and I was answered with uh, silence from Dennis 
And Bishop said, Hey, well, I guess we could just do like rock, paper, scissors for it. And I realized, <laughs> um, and like, we're going to sprint this out. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so then I got stuck on the front. Um, I don't know. Like I'm not really stuck. I guess I could have gotten off of it if I wanted to, but I figured it was, it was going to be the same either way. Um, and then Bishop tried to open it up from third wheel. And then I just, you know, it was a long sprint, like 20 seconds. Uh, and I just barely held off, uh, Van Winden at the very end. Um, but it was kind of funny. Still had a pretty decent sprint at the end there. It was like 1100 Watts for 20 seconds. That's so pretty impressive for a 10, <laughs> 10 hour, 10 hour yeah. effort or whatever. Well, I mean, I hadn't really been using that, uh, sort of like energy. I don't know what you call it, but that sort of energy system for, for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It was still, still worked. Well, hadn't overheated yet. Amazing. Uh, incredible race. And it was, it was fun to watch. You know, uh, I didn't. I I just kind of watched the the checkpoints, sure. you know, and who who was where, and the flip flop, yep, the constant yep. flip flopping through the whole time, and um, and then it was I, I was I was really excited to see how it all all played out, and and I know I, I've been following your career a little bit, and I knew that you were in there, and so it was kind of fun to see you way up there at the top. So um, thanks for thanks, sharing man. your uh, I guess your your story with us, and uh how, no how yeah, that all yeah. went down. Yeah. Um, so obviously the next thing is, uh, is nationals, right? Yeah. Road nationals, June 20th, yeah. my birthday coincidentally, actually. Well, there you go. It sounds like, uh, <laughs> the stars are aligning, huh? <laughs> God, I hope so. I've come so close the last few years, but we'll see. Where, where are they, uh, this year? Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay. Well, we will be, uh, checking in on that and, and rooting for you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate your time. No worries, man. Yeah, happy to talk. The Dirty Chain Podcast is a Michigan Mid-Pack Media production in partnership with KOM Cycling, the source for your bike accessories and necessities. And hey, something a little new? Check out their stuff at komcycling.com and use code DIRTY at checkout for 15% off of your purchase. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Dirty Chain Podcast. Email dirtychainpodcast at gmail.com or call our hotline 616-522-2641. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. A huge thank you to Robin Carpenter for joining us on this episode and thank you all for listening to the Dirty Chain Podcast. And as always, keep your chain clean but get your chain dirty. We will see you in the mid-pack.